Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> the Bible clearly tells us, because he lives, we too shall live. And our worship should reflect the God, the living God that we serve. Our pilgrim journey is short, and it will be worth it all when we see him, won't it? <laughs> our scripture reading today is from a passage in 2 Corinthians. It's one of Paul's most personal letters. And we start, and pastor's preaching from this passage, so if you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll read while you listen, and uh, let's rejoice in the reading of God's Word this morning. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn of the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am not content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. May God bless the reading of his word. It's no wonder uh, some among us wanted this chapter to be featured in our challenging chapters in the Bible. It's no wonder uh, this would be a choice place to look when we want to learn and live God's Word. It's not a mystery why this particular chapter of the Bible would come right to our attention when I ask, what are your favorite chapters? What are the chapters that challenge you to live your life for the Lord? That some of you would say, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because of this surpassing truth, my grace is sufficient for you. What a chapter. What a passage of Scripture. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul gives us this great conclusion. My grace is sufficient for you. I hope that by coming today and by opening our Bibles, in particular to this challenging chapter in the Bible, 
will be better Christians, stronger followers of Christ, more devoted to him, because we have our minds renewed in the principles in this particular chapter this morning. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, how did we get here? How did we get to the context of what the Apostle Paul is writing in this particular chapter? Well, just recall with me that Paul established the church in Corinth. You can read all about those details in Acts chapter 18 on a missionary journey here, uh, led by, empowered by, and supported by God's people. The Apostle Paul on a missionary journey is establishing churches. He's not just winning people to the Lord. They're not just getting converted and, oh, I'll live the Christian life on my own. No, sir. People got saved and he established churches. That's exactly what Paul did in Corinth. Then he got word that there was trouble in Corinth. In other words, in this church that he himself had helped to establish after he left, he got word, word had come to him, hey, Apostle Paul, you know those people back there that got saved in Corinth? They're not living like Christians. Oh, big surprise. The church isn't living up to uh, all that it's supposed to be. <laughs> Sound familiar? Well, apparently that was familiar from the very beginning. The New Testament church not living up to all that it's supposed to be. <laughs> okay? So when he got word of that, he wrote them a letter. And that letter we today call 1 Corinthians. And if you're familiar at all with 1 Corinthians, you know what it is. is a list of about a dozen things that they've been doing wrong. And the Apostle Paul is hopping all over them about it. He's just saying, look, you're doing this. Well, that's just nothing in the world but rebellion to God. And then, look, you're doing this. And you've got to stop that. And look, you're doing this. And that's not to be named among Christians. And look, you're doing this. In other words, 1 Corinthians is all about, would you please... Start living like these new life people you really are. Well, that's 1 Corinthians. And then that didn't seem to do the trick quite well enough. So Paul went to visit them back to Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians, he calls that visit a painful visit, a sorrowful visit. Because he went to say, now I sent you that letter. But apparently what I'm still hearing is you haven't listened yet, so here I am. And I'm going to look you right in the face and I'm going to tell you, that sin has got to stop. That's not okay. We're new creatures in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And he went on down through. And it was tough, hard meetings. In other words, the Apostle Paul was not content to let his new Christians go on in old ways. New Christians are supposed to live new in newness of life. So that was a painful visit. Then, apparently, he wrote a letter that we no longer have. It's a letter that's not in the Bible and that's not anywhere. A letter we don't have because he referred to it. And we simply don't know anything about that letter. But in that letter, he apparently acknowledged their sorrow over their sinful ways. Then we come to 2 Corinthians, the letter that we today call 2 Corinthians, although we know that it's at least 3 Corinthians and maybe it's 4 Corinthians or 5 Corinthians. But we know that this is, the, as far as the Bible is concerned, the second of the letters, but we know that there was at least one intervening letter. But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to encourage them again and to reassert his authority as an apostle since... 
false teachers are coming into Corinth claiming to have a different message from Jesus. So here's the typical pattern. Paul's been setting them straight, and while some people obeyed and did it, other people were bristling at his audacity to come in here and tell us what to believe and how to live. And then other people were coming in and saying, oh, that Apostle Paul guy, he thinks he's quite the hot stuff. But listen, why can't we just go along and get along? Why can't we just uh, continue on in our patterns with everybody here in Corinth? Why do we have to be so different than everybody else? And the Apostle Paul refers to them. Let me uh, show you here. Uh, Turn back to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 5. Chapter 11, verse 5, he's confronting these people who are false prophets. And here's what he says about them. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these. And here's the the name he gives them, these super apostles. These guys who come in and say, they're better than me. They've got a message that's different than my message. And they're claiming that what they have to say is better than what I'm saying. And what does Paul say about them? Look at verse 13, chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are, what does your Bible say? False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, but they are not. They're not super apostles, they're sinful apostles. That's not the only time he uses that. Over in chapter 12, verse 11, he also he says, For I am not at all inferior to these super apostles. He's being facetious there, calling them. They, they presume to have and say they have a message that's from Jesus, but it's false. So Paul is here in this second letter again correcting the church. And he's using this letter to do it. So he's defending himself. Again, how did we get here to this chapter? He's defending himself and his message. And so he rehearses all of his hardships as a true apostle of Christ. So here we are in chapter 11, verse 16. We're coming up to chapter 12. Chapter 11, verse 16. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but... Even if you do so, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What am I saying with this boastful confidence? I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say... We were too weak for that kind of approach. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as full, I also dare to boast of. Are they Hebrews? Well, look, I am too. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. He's exaggerating to make a point. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. In other words, he goes through the hardships he's had as a true apostle with the true message of Christ. 
false prophets have come in. He labeled them super apostles because they weren't super at all. They were sinful. And he says, and look what I've endured to give you the true message as the true apostle of Christ. That's the context leading up to chapter 12. Then God gave Paul an extraordinary revelation of more truth. And that's what he begins to describe in the first part of chapter 12. And as a result of that revelation up in heaven, in the third heaven, paradise, then God allowed Satan to give him this thorn in the flesh, which added to all of his beatings and near-death experiences and hardships that he had already endured. Now you layer on top of that this thorn in the flesh that comes as a result of being God's spokesman, the true apostle. Then you come to that great revelation of verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. So you see the context? It's been troublesome. It's been painful for him personally and for the church. It's been church discipline. It's been church hardship. There's been conflict over the way they've been living out Christianity. And it's been troublesome. So much so that the apostle had not only had to write letters, but had personally had to go. And it was confrontation and difficult. Who wants to go to church if there's going to be trouble there? Who wants to go to church if there's going to be some sense of upset, have to confront sin? I don't want to go there. I just want to go and be convenient and comfortable at church. Really? (laughs) Not since the very beginning of the church has that ever been the case. It's always been a difficult thing to live out the Christian life because it takes both instruction and confronting when construction, instruction doesn't happen. So that's the context. Let's dig in a little deeper to the whole context of the passage. It starts out with ecstasy. Look at what happens. This ecstatic vision that he has right at the very beginning. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ. In his humility, he's using third person rather than, first, rather than speaking about himself. He's, I know a man in Christ. This third person kind of a, out of a humility, speaking of this vision that God gave him, almost as if it was someone else. Go into visions and revelations. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. It was so ecstatic, so majestic in this vision. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In other words... God was giving the Apostle Paul this revelation that would sustain him through the years of his ministry, though false teachers would come and hardships would come. This revelation would be his sustaining grace through it all. This ecstasy then led to, as we continue on reading, some sense of agony On behalf of this man I will boast, but not on my own behalf will I boast, except in my weakness. 
Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. So the, the jerk from ecstasy to agony, he describes here, from being uh, given the privilege of this revelation of God in literally paradise, to see things that men couldn't see, to hear things men couldn't repeat. Ecstasy to the agony of the thorn in the flesh, which would keep him humble despite the elevated privilege God had given him. What would it do? It would humble him. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. His ecstasy went to agony, which led to his humility, which ultimately ended up in his virility, his strength, which the final result of it all was his spiritual maturity and stability as this great apostle that God would use. Now, here's our problem with this passage. We don't like point two do we? We're all about the ecstasy. Yes, God given me a revelation. God given it to the Apostle Paul. We want to hear from God. That's all great. We're, we're, we, we love it. Our problem is the thorn in the flesh, isn't it? That's my problem when I read this passage, because I want to think this. Lord, don't you understand? The Apostle Paul is your guy. There are false apostles all around. Don't you want to treat Paul nice? He's the guy that's got the right message, and he's willing to stand up for you. Don't you want to give him a, the good life? Don't you want him to have his best life now? What are you doing jerking Paul around like this? Giving him a thorn in the flesh? What are you thinking, God? Aren't, don't you think that when you read that passage of Scripture? That's what I think. Because I want everything to go well for believers in Christ. That's what I want. And I have a feeling that's what the Apostle Paul wants, because three times he asked the Lord to do what with that thorn? Take it out. Nobody likes a thorn. So, Lord, wouldn't you please remove it? And what was God's answer? Nope, don't think so. So it begs this question, and this is why we're so interested in this passage of Scripture. Why does God allow his own choice servants to suffer? We get it, why God would pour out his wrath on sinners. But why would God allow his own to suffer? Isn't that the question that's lingering in your mind? Well, let's try to at least give parameters to the answer to that question. Number one, we live in a broken world and life sometimes hurts. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Sometimes we suffer simply because we're human. Our bodies change and grow older. <laughs> and we're susceptible to the normal 
problems of life. God has not removed us from the regular, typical, in other words, from Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all, that brokenness of the world we live in means us. It rains on the just and the unjust. There's good that comes to the bad people and good that comes to good people. There's bad that comes to good people as well as bad that comes to bad people. So there is that general reality that we must face. The same family members and friends that delight us can break our hearts. This is a part of the human depravity that we all live in. And so the same body that brings us pleasure can bring us pain. We live in that world and in that reality. And the Lord doesn't remove us from it necessarily. The Lord does hear and answer prayer. This passage of Scripture is not a passage that you would go to and say, look, God doesn't answer prayer. Even the Apostle Paul prayed. He even prayed three times, thank you. And God didn't hear him. God didn't remove the thorn. So God doesn't answer prayer. That's the wrong conclusion. Is it right to pray about our pain? Yes. Does God promise to always remove pain? The answer is no. But if he was a good God, wouldn't he do that? No, because we're not through with the list yet. <laughs> Number two, we rebel and suffer the consequences. All right, here's another reason why God allows suffering of his own. Because we are foolish and sometimes disobedient to the Lord. Our own rebellion may afflict us. Or the Lord may see fit to chasten us in love. Isn't that what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us? If we are his own, he loves us enough to chasten us and correct us and bring us back to himself. And, and the illustration that we could all very well relate to is the way a parent loves a child and the way a parent of necessity, disciplines a child. By the way, that's a concept. It's kind of lost in America these days, but that really is a concept. Parents disciplining their children. Hopefully such that when they're, you know, three, four, five, six years old, when you do it pretty well and consistently there, there's not so much needed when they're 16, 17, 18 years old, you know, because they've learned there, right? Okay, well, that's a whole different subject. But anyway, because we understand that concept, we can understand the fact that the Lord in love disciplines us. King David was the choice servant of God, right? In fact, a man after God's own heart. But when King David stepped out of line, and he did, and severely, what did God do? Did he just let that ride? No. In fact, the anguish of heart that King David experienced, you can read about it, Psalm 51, was just like melted his heart. But there was true repentance there, true confession there, true change of heart there. And that's a mark of a man after God's own heart. And on and on that list goes. Then thirdly, 
We grow through the trials God allows. So suffering is also a tool God uses for building godly character. You've got a lot of tools in your toolkit, don't you, ladies and gentlemen? Right? Did I get that right? And I got that right, didn't I? <laughs> Good. <clears throat> You've got a lot of tools in your toolkit. And one of the tools in God's toolkit for shaping and molding us as his children is pain, suffering, difficulties, hardships. Paul was a man of rich Christian character. Because he allowed God to mold and make him even in the painful experiences of his life. You know what it's like when you go along a riverbed and you see those smooth stones uh, kind of polished over by the water rushing over them and tumbling them you know, down through the mountain stream coming downhill and, and as the water rushes over it and, and that jagged rock gets rounded and smoothed and polished and you pick it up kind of at the bottom of the hill and you say, oh, what a, what a polished stone this is. How did it happen? Through the waves and the wind and the hardship of life, let's call it. That's how God polishes our lives. The Apostle Paul went from ecstasy to agony, and God used the combination of both, both for Paul. Ultimately, his virility, his strength, his strength of force, his power came from the reality that in his weakness, God strengthened him through it. God's gracious provision of power was an exchange for his weakness. Until we recognize that weakness, that, that sense of, I can't do this, God. I can't. It's just not within me. Until we come there, the graciousness of his provision of peace and power will not be experienced. That's why he could say, I'm beginning to realize the re revelation. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If God's grace is sufficient to save us, it surely is sufficient to keep us, and it is sufficient to strengthen us in our times of trouble. We don't live on explanations about our circumstances. We live on promises to get us through those circumstances. God doesn't promise to give you an explanation about why everything is hard. If that's what you're looking for, you're going to be disappointed. He doesn't promise to give you an explanation about that relationship that's broken, about that hardship at work about that health concern that's troubling, 
about the financial situation you find yourself in. If you're, if you're looking for a sign from God out of heaven about why that's happening, you're probably not going to find it. But you will find this promise, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's what we operate in as believers. That's why we have grace groups. <laughs> that's why we, we, in this church, among our church family, that's why we talk about we need God's grace. And in informing our grace groups, we're asking God to do what he's promised to do. We're acting in faith that he would do what he promised to do. That his grace would be sufficient for us. And how does that happen? Well, Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace. That we may receive mercy and find what? Grace to help while you're in the hospital. When you lost your job. When that boyfriend walks away. When things don't go the way we hoped, when the world tells us we're on the wrong side of history, right? We will find grace to help in time of need when we go to the throne of grace. And you call that a grace group who's getting together to say, in fact, at five o'clock tonight, when we gather in homes, And in this church building, and we say, Lord, here we are, coming to the throne of grace because we believe that your grace is sufficient for us. That ecstasy led to agony, which led to his humility, ultimately to his virility, his strength, which then produced what we're all after this week, spiritual maturity. In other words, strength that comes when really what we have to offer the Lord is weakness. And he takes that weakness and turns it into strength. The kind of spiritual maturity, like the Apostle Paul would say, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm continuing on this journey. My smooth stone hasn't tumbled down to the end of the stream yet. It's still tumbling. (laughs) There's still the work that's going on polishing my life. I press on in that direction. And I trust God in the midst of it. That's what I'm looking for. So let me ask, what does spiritual maturity look like in our lives? Because that's our goal. Well, I just put down a few suggestions. It it looks like persevering in holiness in the midst of corruption. We live in a corrupt world. If, If you just look around and say, well, I'll make decisions like my neighbor or like my school friends, or if I just, I'll just be like everybody else, just whatever you can get away with. Well, if you're going to do that, (laughs) that's not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity says, I'm going to live a holy life, because after all, Christ says, be holy, for I am holy. I'm going to do that despite the fact that other people aren't going to be holy. I'm going to have to be different in that regard. And when temptation comes to lie or cheat, or steal, or be immoral, or to, when the temptation comes, I'm going to 
Resist that temptation. Because wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How, how can a young man cleanse his way? Resist that temptation by taking heed thereto according to God's word. That's how he can do it. So it is possible to resist temptation even when you're 16 years old. It is possible to resist temptation and do it without sinning. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. And responding to those difficult situations without becoming bitter about them. Well, so-and-so has a better life than I do. If that makes you bitter, then you're not on the road to spiritual maturity. That sense of jealousy, that, that sense of envy, uh, you, that's, we don't compare ourselves among ourselves because that's not wise, right? If you've got a difficult situation... You can't say, well, Lord, I wanted an easy life. Why didn't you dial up an easy life for me? That leads to just bitterness. Can you bless those that persecute you and say all manner of evil against you because you're a follower of Christ? Being fruitful in the power of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kind, all of those qualities of the Spirit, the fruit that comes from a believer whose life is empowered by and controlled by the Holy Spirit himself. Seeking to love people and lead them to Christ. This is just a, a list of things that would be characteristic of, of moving toward Christ rather than away from him. So the question for us this morning is, does this describe you? Does this describe you? Do you want spiritual power and maturity today? Humbly pray. That's what Paul did. He humbled himself and prayed. Then submissively wait on God's answer then eagerly act on the power he gives in the midst of your weakness. Would you like to be saved today? There were false prophets that came in with a different gospel. And Paul had to make the distinction about what the true gospel was. And it was a conflict. It was difficult the gospel has always needed to be contended for. And that's our role. That's our privilege. If you would like to be truly saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, humbly repent of your sin. Believingly receive Christ as your Savior. Openly confess your faith in Him. And you will be saved. That will begin the life toward spiritual maturity where we can say, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and take a moment today to contemplate our appropriation of the grace of God 
making us powerful in his strength. This may be the moment for you to recognize the truth of the gospel in Christ and ask him to forgive you of your sin and to save you. This would be your moment. So please take this time to respond to the Lord right this minute. For those of us who have been saved, could we say, uh, Lord, um, I don't always like my circumstances, but I am willing to submit to you and your will and your way, and I want to grow strong in the midst of my hardships. I feel weak, Lord, but you are strong. And so whether it's the grief of a friend lost or whether it's a relationship that's difficult, whether it's this corruption of the world in which we live and how hard it is to have conversations with people, in the midst of that weakness... The Lord will give you strength as you submissively wait on Him and anticipate His power for this day, this week, this hardship, this trial. Lord, we want to tell you that we recognize that we're insufficient, but that you are sufficient. The revelation, the ecstasy of the revelation of your word leads us to this victory, this virility and strength that we can have to endure the hardship. And Lord, I pray that our maturity would be the result of humbly waiting upon you and your strength and power in our lives. Give it, we pray. May we manifest it in the power of the Spirit this week. In Jesus' name.